Hello and welcome to the Faber podcast for December 2009. My name is George Miller, and in this last podcast of the year, our focus is on crime. Coming up later in the programme, Tobias Jones on the Salati case, a missing person investigation set in the murky fog of a northern Italian winter that soon turns into much more. Well, Castagnetti's hired by a, a notary to find a man who went missing a few years before because his mother's died and left a will that it should be ascertained whether he's dead or alive before her estate is distributed. So Castagnetti limps off into the the dark family history and tries to work out what happened to this this young man and why. My first guest today is Nicola Upson. Nicola worked in a theatre and as a journalist before publishing her first crime novel, An Expert in Murder, in 2008. The book introduced readers to Josephine Tay, a real-life crime writer who flourished in the golden age of the 1930s, for whom Nicola has created fictional adventures. Her debut led her to being hailed by P.D. James as a new and assured talent. This year she's followed that success with a second Josephine Tay mystery, Angel with Two Faces. This takes Josephine to the family home of her old friend Inspector Archie Penrose in Cornwall, and despite Josephine's hopes of a peaceful writing retreat, the idyll is soon shattered by murder and the emergence of dark secrets. I began by asking Nicola to tell me more about her fascination with the real Josephine Tay. Well, like a lot of people, although I've realised the more people I've talked to since the book started coming out, that I'm quite an elite developer in terms of discovering Josephine Tay. Most people do it in their teenage years, but I was well into my 20s. But I read one of her most famous books called The Franchise Affair, and I was so struck by how different it was from a lot of the golden age or so-called golden age literature that was coming out around the same time. This is in the late 40s because it was just such a modern voice. Uh, So I went on to read her other novels, her other crime novels that she wrote under the name Josephine Tay. And although there are only eight of them, sadly, because uh, she died at a young age, I found that not only are they all different from a lot of the Sayers and the Christie and the Allingham and the, the Marsh, the big four that are trucked out, they're also completely different from each other and each one is a joy in its own right. So that was how I came across her as a crime writer. And then I read the infuriatingly small piece of information that you get in those Penguin Green and White novels about her as a person and found out that during her lifetime, um, she died in 1952, but before that she was most famous as a playwright called Gordon Daviot. And she had created this whole other literary personality, which was very, very different from the crime novels, but no less successful and no less original. And it seemed that it was extraordinary that this woman who spent most of her life in Inverness came down to London whenever she felt like it really, but that somebody who was as private as she was and as little known as she was today should have been the toast of the West End and the woman who created the careers of John Gielgud and Laurence Olivier and people like that. So I was fascinated by her. And then what was it that made you think that you might want to take that fascination a stage further and actually incorporate her into fiction? Well, there was a stage before that, which was that I really wanted to do a biography because it seemed to me that she was still so underrated and that more people should know about her. So there was a competition at the time. I think it was run by Virago and the Society of Women Writers and Journalists. And the idea was that you would put forward a a synopsis for a woman who you felt deserved more recognition. So I put her forward and she got shortlisted. 
which kind of encouraged me to go on with it. But she was a very private woman. She rolled up a lot of carpets to do with her personal life. And although her professional life was very well documented and lots of those people who had worked with her were still about and I could talk to them, um, it wasn't really going to be a straightforward biography. And by this time, I'd got my partner involved because she works for the BBC and she has a passion for social history and is a, the most wonderful researcher. And it was actually her who had the vision to see that although it probably wasn't going to become a biography, it could be something different and there were more ways than one to tell a life story. So it was one of those, for God's sake, make it up conversations mm. that actually had a very serious point behind it. And as it's turned out, it's just the most amazing joy, really, to be able to tell that life through a series of books rather than just through one. And presumably the, the shortcomings for, for the biographer, the, those areas which you cannot really sh shed a light on, are an attraction for a novelist because you're then able to populate those areas. They're perfect. I mean, she's very obliging in that. And there does come a point, I think, in research when you're talking about real people where the gaps become more fascinating than the facts because a lot of her life was very quietly led. As I said, she was in Inverness. She looked after her father. She kept house. She came down to London. But it wasn't really, you know, the, the fireworks stuff. There were lots of gaps. She was always packing and unpacking. She travelled a lot. And those gaps were perfect to be filled in with things that make sense in the context of her life but are complete fiction and because obviously now we know her best today as a crime writer it seems sensible to around the biographical thread to have a self-contained crime mystery usually a murder mystery within each novel and did you set yourself any rules for how you would put a, a real historical character into a fictional landscape yeah, I mean, it's a bit easier with her because she is Josephine Tay in the novels. She's not Elizabeth McIntosh, although it does follow the path of Elizabeth McIntosh's life. But that, that was the wonderful part, really, because unlike the academic discipline of a biography, you can make a pact with her. You can always be on her side. You can always fight her corner. And you don't have to be quite as objective as you would be as a biographer. And so I suppose that the rules that were set down were to do her justice to bring her work perhaps a bit more into the fore than it, than it had been, but also not to do anything that I felt would have been completely against her character. So although there are gaps to fill in, there are things I've made up and there are decisions you have to take because the evidence isn't clear, the, the guiding rule really is not to do anything that you know in your heart that she wouldn't have done. Except, of course, get involved in a load of murder <laughs> mysteries. <laughs> but once you accept the big one, then other things are possible. Exactly. I think there are things that as readers we take as an act of faith. Otherwise, you'd have no such thing as crime fiction. So that's OK. When you tell people the kind of books you write, do they make the assumption that you're writing some kind of pastiche? You're trying to sort of recreate something that's that's been and gone from the golden age? Yes, they do. And it's nice for me to make a distinction really between trying to recreate a golden age novel which these books don't do and understanding the period in which golden age fiction was created but from a modern perspective so that when people tell me that perhaps some of the words that come out of the characters mouths some of the sentiments they express some of the tolerance they express um, would not really have been acceptable in a golden age tradition then I then I perhaps probably would cheer because the worst thing that could happen for me would be for somebody to come up and slap me on the back and say I think you captured the bigotry of the period really really well so people's attitudes to homosexuality, perhaps, to crime, to murder in general, to grief, 
they have a more modern perspective in these books than you normally got in the golden age fiction. Although having said that, the beauty of Josephine Tay's books is that they are very modern in their outlook and they do have a dark undercurrent under what looks like a quite conventional narrative. I mean, the way, the way it seemed to me was that you were writing about things which would really have gone on in those years, but wouldn't necessarily have been, or would not have been written about in the detective fiction of those years. Yes, I think that's ab absolutely true. And I think although the social conventions are very, very different these days, when you come down to it, the emotions that these people feel, the grief, the love lives, they're not so different. You know, there isn't a glass screen between us and the 1930s because the emotions are fundamentally the same. But it's lovely to be able to write books in which it is more acceptable to express what I know from having read letters and diaries and, public, uh, and papers that were never intended for publication. They really were the things that were thought and spoken privately between friends that perhaps trusted each other. But the constraints were certainly more present in those days, and you mentioned homosexuality, and, and clearly there were things which now are accepted, which in those days were illegal, and, and therefore the this, this sort of shame and the scandal are therefore that much more intense. And as a novelist, that sort of heightens the, the tension greatly, doesn't it? It does. It's interesting because a lot of the books have a theatre link and theatre was one world which even in the 1930s, it was not necessarily acceptable, but certainly safer to be gay in than any other world there. But it's interesting, even the difference between the 1920s and the 1930s, we, we think about the gap being between that age and this one. but. The 1920s were a fabulous time for women, really, in lots of ways. After the war, although obviously we suffered a huge loss of that generation of men, for some women it was absolutely devastating, for others it was completely liberating. And certainly lesbianism in the 1920s was much more acceptable than it was in the 1930s after The Well of Loneliness was published and the court case happened in 1929. There was a huge shutdown and that is something that affected Tay and a lot of her circles. You mentioned, you mentioned the war, and we think of it as the interwar period, but of course to them it was the post-war period because they didn't know what was ahead. And the shadow of the First World War does seem to, to be a long one. It's a hugely long one, and that was one of the biggest shocks to me really when I was doing an expert in murder and reading a lot of the accounts of the First World War. It was really quite a shock to me to realise that in the early 1930s, the horror of the First World War was still so fresh in people's memories. I mean, the people who had returned sick, the next generation that it began to affect, the families of the people who had been lost in that war. But also, I think, as the 30s progressed, it became all the more sharply focused because it became evident that there was another war looming on the horizon. And I, can, I can't even really begin to imagine what it must have been like for the people who had lived through that war to know that none of those lessons had been learned and that the chances were that something was going to happen again and it was going to happen a lot more a lot closer to home than it had done in the first world war and both josephine and her friend archie bear the mark of a tragedy from the first world war that's that's clearly something which has deeply affected both of them it has i mean josephine has her loss in the First World War, her lover. Archie himself has huge scars from the First World War. But the biggest tragedy for them, really, I think, as they grow older together and as their friendship develops, is that 
they can never really understand what each other went through in that war. He doesn't really understand her loss and she can't possibly begin to imagine what he went through. And there is this big divide between the people who fought the war and saw the horrors firsthand and the people who were at home waiting for them. And that lack of understanding is something that was a knock-on effect for the next generation. We've mentioned Archie Penrose. Tell me how he took shape because you you obviously took the decision not to go it solo with with Josephine and she he's she's got a companion let's say in in her investigations she has i made the decision very early on that the thing that i really didn't want to happen was to turn her into a miss marple type amateur sleuth because it goes back to what we were saying about not doing something that would be completely against her character and that would have been because she was quite reserved and she didn't really like to engage with people unless she had to, which doesn't make for a great detective, really. So I wanted there to be a proper policeman in the book. Archie is a nod to her own fictional hero, Josephine Tay's hero, Inspector Alan Grant, who in his own right was quite an extraordinary figure in crime fiction. He was the first, I think, really credible professional policeman in detective fiction. He wasn't a, a brilliant amateur. He wasn't a bungling policeman. He was just a hard-working individual policeman. So Archie is a nod to Alan Grant, but he's also a composite of a lot of the real policemen who were at Scotland Yard at that time. And it's, it's fascinating from a research point of view because obligingly they all had the sort of ego that meant they would write an autobiography the minute they stepped down from the yard. So there are, you know, there's Cornish of the yard, French of the yard, and all these policemen. So he is a combination of, of real police research and also the best of the fictional detectives. So he's a kind of tip of the, the hat to, to Tay's detective and also in the in the novels you've got Tay writing her, her real detective story so there's all exactly. the sort of circular games and mirrors going on. Exactly, it can go full circle and the interesting thing about Alan Grant really is that he paved the way for a lot of the fictional detectives that we love today, people like Wexford and Adam Dalgleish. I mean he, he was the forerunner of that but it, it is nice to have that kind of infinity circle going on where she bases her policeman on Archie in the books as well. Now, tell me about Cornwall. The new novel is set in Cornwall. It's a very powerful presence in the book. So how did that sort of impress itself on you as a, as a good place to, to situate the book? Well, Cornwall was very important in the development of the series long before really the Cornish book was written because the idea for the series was that I that I spoke about earlier was had in a National Trust cottage on the Penrose estate which forms the basis of the setting in Angel with Two Faces. We went back there several times and fell in love with this particular part of Cornwall. It's called the Penrose estate, it's now owned and managed by the National Trust but it is the largest freshwater lake in Cornwall. It's one of the many lakes that Arthur was supposed to have thrown Excalibur into and there is a, a fabulous evocative place called Low Bar where that lake is separated from the sea by a very narrow stretch of sand and it is the most magical place on earth and because um, the estate in the 1930s was a very very closed community it seemed just too good to be true to avoid setting a book there because you've, you've got the ready-made community for the detective story you've got the magic of the setting and yet you've got this darkness which I think Cornwall has I think it's for you know somebody who's quite soft and comes from East Anglia like I do to go to to somewhere as powerful and alien in in many ways as Cornwall is quite 
an interesting thing because it's a place of contrast. It's the beauty, it's the darkness, it's the sea and it's the human element and it was all there really. Plus the fact that the tallest stories I know come out of Cornwall. Some of our very good friends in Cornwall um, contributed to the book for, for years really by telling us stories as we, as we went down there. And it was just, it was just magical. Well, that was something I wanted to ask you about because one of the phrases which stuck in my mind from the, um, from the new book was darkness masked by beauty. And I wondered if you if if that sort of sprang from within your imagination or if you genuinely experienced that there was something in Cornwall that you you felt that presence of darkness or if that was something which you kind of brought into the equation that was already present in your mind. No, it, it's definitely there. I mean, even today, we when we go down, we spend quite a lot of our time in Cornwall now. Um, we go down every month for a week or two. And almost always when we go down there, and, and I'm not kidding you, there has been some kind of odd or mysterious death. There's usually a funeral going on when we arrive, which is why I wanted to open the book with a funeral. And the suicide rate seems to be quite prevalent. Now, I don't know why that should be, but having spoken to a lot of the older generation in the village, and for the research for the book, we went to talk to the undertakers in the village whose family have been in undertaking for years. But that's not something that's new. And I think, what struck me when the early stages of the book were underway was that the attitude to death in Cornwall is very, very different from a lot of the modern attitude to death that we meet in our everyday lives now. There's still a great respect for it down there. There's still a great sense of practicality and black humour, but speaking to Victor, the undertaker on whom Jago Snipe in the book is based, what came out was this huge compassion that they have. And I, I did a lot of research on death and on undertaking and mm. on the physicality of death for the book. And in contrast to the stories that he would tell me about his father and how things were when he was growing up, I would then get these loads of pamphlets on, on modern day death, which just seemed to have absolutely no bearing on what people want to do with loss anymore. I mean, the undertakers at the end of my road up here call themselves memorial consultants, which seemed a million miles away. So the attitude to death down there is very much that of what I think it was mostly in the 1930s. And, and, and what's your explanation for that? Is it, is it landscape? Is it the, the fact that sea has claimed people in the past? Is it sort of separateness? What, what do you think accounts for that, that darkness you perceive? Well, I think it is partly to do with the power of the sea and the power of the landscape. I mean, there is no arguing with it. You sit on the beach as the tide's coming in and you know that you have respect for that. There is nothing human that can cope with that whatsoever. So it is partly that. It's also partly that there's undeniably an economic hardship in Cornwall and, ha and has been, uh, particularly with the destruction of some of the industries down there. That leads to a darkness today. But also, it is very much a part of, and this I don't think is peculiar to Cornwall, but it is a part of village life. The families have been there for generations and there are communities within communities. And each of those different families usually has a secret. And that really was the fundamental starting point of the book. Yes, and you mentioned closed communities before and that the novel is set in an estate and Archie, the detective, although um, Archie was born and raised there, he's, he's really regarded as an outsider coming back in, isn't he? So th those secrets are very much locked up behind closed doors within families. They are, and he's separated doubly really because his family were um, in charge of the country estate. So, I mean, he was separated from the village before he even left the community. But of course, now he's gone away. He went to university, he's, he's gone to war, and he's built himself another life completely, as have Ronnie and Lettuce Motley. 
So when they come back, they come back very much as visitors. Doubly so for Archie, of course, because the minute there's trouble on the estate, he becomes a professional, he becomes a policeman, and very much the outsider looking in, which makes people even more suspicious of him than they would have been already. You mentioned earlier you didn't want to reproduce the prejudices of the, the golden age or of that time, and it seemed to me your sort of sensitivity to, to, to class was, was part of not wishing to simply make working class people caricatures and stereotypes. I mean, is that something you're, you're conscious of when you're writing, sort of doing justice to to characters at all levels in, in society? Yes, I hope so. Particularly, actually, in, in the third book that, that I've just finished as well, class is very important in that. But I think what I do try to do, and you have to do this when, when you're doing period fiction, I think, is to stop being conscious of, of the gap between you and the period you're writing about. And in the same way, I don't think it would work if I sat down and consciously said, I want to investigate class and I want to make these characters as real as real can be. You have to feel you have to feel them properly before you, you start writing them. You have to do the research, know who they are, and then put that down as an issue, really. You can't keep the, writing the book with the issue in your head, but I'm pleased that that does come out. And perhaps the same thing goes with the desire, because your characters are animated by very powerful desires, and perhaps there comes a, a, a stage with those two where you're not sort of censoring yourself and saying, you know, this is not 1930s or this is 1930s desires. They are recognisable human characters animated by those passions. Yes, they are. I think obviously because of the concentration into a detective story, those desires and the things that they are driven to do through those desires become more magnified and become more concentrated because you do have to create, hopefully, a tense story which will keep get people guessing right until the end. But that's absolutely right. It's interesting that people say, you know, you write about what you know, and that certainly is true. But the interesting point for me, I think, is the 10% that you don't know about. And hopefully for most of us writing crime novels, that is the darkest desires that will lead people to take the ultimate extreme. And it is very interesting, I think, to try to create murders which are, and crime writers, if we're all honest, we all want to create the nastiest murders we possibly can. But it's interesting to create murders that you think come from very ordinary domestic reasons, come from something as simple as falling in love with the wrong person, which none of us are immune to, if we're absolutely honest about, and which certainly are not confined to the 1930s or the 1940s or 2009. They are quite straightforward emotions, but taken to the extreme. Have you discovered things about yourself as a result of writing crime novels? What a good question. I think perhaps the most shocking thing is that probably what I've just said, that most of us, I think, put under the right circumstances or the wrong circumstances, are actually capable of an act of violence. I think most of us recognise that we would do it in a moment of high passion. But I do think that it is easier than I ever imagined it would be to sit down and put yourself in these characters' positions and see, envisage the, the, the steps that lead to the ultimate act being taken. So I'm not saying, of course, that I'm not going to go out and kill somebody or that I feel that murderous instinct because I don't. But I do see how easily it can happen. You mentioned that the third book is finished. Can you tell us a little bit about where that will take Josephine and Archie? 
I can. It's set back in London in November of 1935. Josephine is staying at the Cowdery Club, which is where she always stayed when she was in London. It's a club for nurses and professional women, of which she was a member. And the um, plot is to do with a book that she is currently writing, which is which goes back to a real-life murder case of 1902, and then is brought horrifyingly up to date in the present with a murder that takes place in the Motley's workshop. It has a theatre theme. Uh, Noel and Gertie are there to do a charity gala. And it also, although I didn't realise when I was going, when I was setting out to do the story, but you, you, when you get halfway through, there are certain characters, and it's not just Josephine Tay who's a real person in this. There are other real people in them as well. Uh, one of the people who came out of this particular story is a lady called Mary Size, who was the deputy governor of Holloway Prison at the time, and did the most amazing things for prison reform. So there is a there is a prison storyline in there too, and it's a book which confronts Josephine with some emotional and very private questions of her own. Your first novel was made into a radio play. What was that experience like? It was fabulous, actually. They let us go and watch it being recorded uh, up in Scotland. It was BBC Scotland production. And it was wonderful to see that whole process of, of the book, which, you know, because it was the first novel, I was really just getting used to seeing it as a book. So then to take it onto another medium together was fabulous. And it was really brilliant to be up there and see that they still do the sound effects in the same way as they must have done in the 1930s. So that was great. I mean, there were certain things I liked about it and certain things I didn't, but it took the book to a completely different audience and gave it a profile, which was wonderful. And it brought it to life for me in a completely different way. It was I was able to be more detached about it than I would be just sitting down and reading a book. Are there recordings of Josephine's speaking voice? Have you ever heard her? No, I, I, I never have. And it's funny because I was talking about this the other day. I was saying to somebody that I would swap all the pictures I have for just 30 seconds of her recorded voice because I gather from people who wrote about her that she had a very beautiful voice. Obviously, the Inverness accent is a lovely accent, but it would be lovely to hear it. But sadly, I haven't. I think, I think that's true that that if you have a voice recording like, you know, even if it's Tennyson, you know, from the bottom yes, of a bucket exactly. or, or T.S. Eliot in toning, it, it brings people to life in a way that no number of photographs can do. It does. And even if they're putting on a radio voice, you can usually get to the bottom of that. It's very evocative. And, I, and, I, and you know, one may come to light and I hope it does. Let me ask you finally, do you feel that you belong in a sense in the 1930s or can you imagine writing a, a contemporary detective novel at some time in the future? Well, I certainly think there's a lot of mileage of the 1930s. I'd, I mean, I, I love the characters that are being created at the moment, and I think they have a lot, they have a lot of mileage in them yet. I mean, I, I don't, the things we've talked about, I don't really see them as having particular limitations because they're set in the 1930s. I can probably see myself writing a book in which there isn't a murder. I think one of the things that uh, Josephine Tay stands out for is create crime novels, which which stand up in their own right with having the, without having the mechanic of a murder. So I'd very much like to write perhaps a contemporary book, but one that didn't have a murder in it. Nicola Upson. Angel with Two Faces is available now in hardback. My second guest today is Tobias Jones. Tobias is best known as the author of The Dark Heart of Italy, a book which overturned all the cosy clichés of La Dolce Vita, and showed that you cannot judge Italian society by its often beautiful, beguiling surface appearance. Tobias's exploration of Italy's dark heart is now being pursued through fiction. Earlier this year, he published The Salati Case, the first in a series of crime novels set in the northern city of Parma, featuring private detective Castagnetti. 
And as you'll hear in the interview, Tobias was also able to make the novel a sort of homage to his literary hero, American crime writer Ross MacDonald, once considered one of the big three of American crime fiction, alongside Hammett and Chandler. When I met Tobias, though, I began by asking him if he felt that crime fiction was a particularly good way of getting under the skin of life in Italy today. I've always loved crime novels. I know there are lots of people who don't like crime novels. I've always loved them. And particularly, I've always loved the Italian crime novels, Shasha especially. And I think when you're writing non-fiction about criminal cases, you spend an awful lot of time with lawyers. And certainly legal action has become the equivalent of the bullet a few decades ago. The easiest way to keep a, a critic quiet is to, is to launch a, a legal case. And, you know, certain politicians in Italy do it all the time. And it, it became quite clear to me that actually you could explore all sorts of facets of Italian society in fiction that would be just as illuminating as writing about real cases. I mean, the great for me, the great thing about crime fiction is that it is the most realistic of genres. You know, no one would say that of science fiction, but for someone who's written two non-fiction books, sort of sliding into crime fiction wasn't as much of a leap as becoming sort of a, a magic realist or whatever. It wasn't, it wasn't as if I was suddenly having to to discover a whole new sort of realm of fantasy inside my little brain. Crime fiction by its nature should be realistic and, and a sort of a faithful reflection of the society in which it's set. And I think it's clear that, you know, one of the lead characters in crime fiction is always the backdrop, which is why exotic crime fiction is, is so fashionable at the moment, because, you know, you can find crime novels set in, in Laos or Turkey or, or for any country you want and it's almost like another guidebook to to the country and 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 I suppose yeah to answer your question in a long-winded way um I suppose it did become clear to me that you could you could say very interesting things about a country through fiction as much as through factual narrative really as you say crime fiction is a big genre in Italy itself and there are also a number of English language writers who've, who've written crime fiction set in Italy. Are they very different beasts to, to your way of thinking, those written by Italians and those written by outsiders? There is, there is a big difference between British and Italian writers, even the, you know, the British writers writing in Italy. I think it's partly the tradition we come from that for a lot of British or American authors, there's still that classical tradition of the, the whodunit which Italian crime fiction tends to be more the noir in terms of the downward spiral of a central character who you often know from the beginning is the, the murderer. Also, I think Italian crime writers often deliberately talk about the sort of the, the politics of the country and specific cases and it, a bit in the way that James Elroy does in America, very much sort of knit, they knit together specific cases, particularly because a lot of the good crime writers in Italy are, are magistrates. Carofilio, I mean, Romanzo Criminale is a very good example of sort of taking a, a gang of criminals and seeing what they do to the country and how they do it. So I think it's more, 
it's 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 perhaps less the sort of traditional who done it with a with a lone wolf detective shasha's novels are often so short and precise and beautifully done they are astonishing i mean that i still have in my mind the scene of a a conversation with an unnamed faceless member of parliament and this sense of power and dripping arrogance is extraordinary and it kind of remains with you for for years and so i suppose they, they're more sort of embedded in the culture of the country tell me about the american writers and influences that that fed into the salati case well my my literary hero and anyone who reads the salati case and future novels will know is is ross mcdonald i mean one famous line about ross mcdonald is that he didn't write about crime he wrote about sin his books have a metaphysical depth to them that's extraordinary. I mean, often people think that crime fiction is a slightly superficial genre and it's it's simply a sort of parlour game of, you know, who did it? And it's a bit like kind of a literary Cluedo. Whereas Ross MacDonald, in his own words, wrote about brokenness. He wrote about fractured society. He wrote about misfits and people who are down on their luck. And he managed to combine a very hard, laconic, sarcastic private eye who actually underneath it all was very humane and who, even when he unearthed who had done the crime, he managed to elicit empathy for the criminal in an extraordinary way. And he wrote about the tragic reverberations that had to shoot back through the novel when you get to the final page so that the whole of the novel looks different when you know the conclusion. He's, 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 he's an extraordinary writer and one who, who manages to sort of rewrite classical myths in a, in a contemporary Californian setting. He is, you know, he's, he's up there as the, you know, for me, the most, most important crime writer of the, of the 20th century. I, I saw one online review describe the Salati case as hard-boiled with a soft centre and I think I think it meant that entirely positively. I mean, is that a description that that you recognise. Yeah, I mean, I'm very suspicious of effete private detectives who describe for three pages what recipe they're cooking or, you know, what game of chess they're having with their intellectual companion in a cafe. I mean, I like an old-fashioned kick-the-door-down, pistol-in-hand private eye. So in that sense, I hope, you know, he certainly is pretty hard-boiled. But I think... It, it's very difficult to to elicit sympathy for for your central character unless he is both wounded and and sort of sympathetic. So yeah, I hope he's he's got a soft centre as well. There's a lot we've yet to discover about Castagnetti. There's, there's we don't learn a great deal about his his past in this first novel. We know his parents died when he was eight, but beyond that, there's a lot a lot of blanks left to fill in. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how how much leaving blanks in Castagnetti's life was deliberate or or not. I I've certainly spoke to a lot of crime writers who've who've written eight, ten, twelve book series, who get letters from fans saying actually his second cousin was born in 1974, not 1973. And in a way, if you're intending to to write a series of books about one central character, in a way, you kind of want to keep your powder dry in the first book. And I would rather have a character who isn't fully developed than one who is over-described and very difficult to to emerge. I mean, 
you know, to take Lou Archer, Ross McDonald's detective, he certainly emerged from being a sort of Philip Marlowe clone into something very, very different. I mean, you sort of, if you see the Paul Newman films, you can see this sort of charming, kind, gentle, witty, hard-boiled private detective who's very different to Marlowe in a way. Tell me about this, a little bit about the society that Castagnetti operates in, because he, I mean, uh, almost as a generic requirement, he, he is something of an outsider. He's kind of marginal to it. It's a, a rich, affluent, northern Italian city with plenty to hide, it seemed to me. It's set in the city where I lived for five years. And I was always amazed that when the biggest scandal to happen in Italian finance for probably 40 or 50 years, which was the implosion of Parmalat, the front page of the Gazzetta di Parma didn't have it. You know, it was on the front page of the New York Times, the Washington Post, the, the London Times. It wasn't on the front page of the Gazzetta di Parma. And that, for me, said everything you need to know about the city, that it was exquisitely beautiful, is exquisitely beautiful, is extraordinarily refined. You know, it's where the ham and the cheese comes from. It's where Verdi's from. It's, you know, it's got the wonderful opera house. But underneath all that is this undercurrent of, of other goings on. And so that for me seems the perfect place to, to set a crime novel. Tell me a little bit about the Salati case itself. Well, Castagnetti's hired by a, a notary to find a man who went missing a few years before because his mother's died and left a will that it should be ascertained whether he's dead or alive before her estate is distributed. So... Castagnetti limps off into the the dark family history and tries to work out what happened to this this young man and why in order that this fairly modest estate can be can be disposed of and of course in in the process discovers various things about about the family and he limps off into the mist literally and metaphorically the mist mist is one of the the characteristics almost a character in the in the book it seemed to me yeah i mean the 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 setting of the sort of the fog of of the padanian plain is probably slightly me being contrary because everyone always thinks of this wonderful blissful sunlit country for me the memories of living in emilia romagna meant fog from november through to march basically and for the first few winters i spent there it was very weird because you you know most normally visibility was reduced to five meters and it was cold and damp and humid and people kept complaining about arthritis and and aching limbs but actually the longer you live there you you become very fond of the fog and it's it's part of what that part of the world is and yeah so the fog is is a sort of an integral part of the the setting i suppose one of the things that i really liked about the dark heart of italy was the way in which you introduce concepts which are peculiarly Italian, for which it's, it's very difficult to find any uh, accurate translation in English. And in the Salati case, you introduce the, the notion of insabiatura. And I wanted you to say what that is, because that seemed to me quite a sort of fundamental idea about how the investigation proceeds. Yeah, there are certain words that are always used when reporting crime cases in the, in the Italian press, and insabiatura is one of them. If you look at many of the sort of iconic crimes from the 50s, 60s, 70s, many of them have never been resolved. And there are certain words that always come out in the reporting. Omisis is one, the sort of the, the rubber wall against which all 
investigations bounce is another and in sabiatura is is sort of the the sanding up the silting up of investigations and the this sense that the truth can be buried by piling on top of it all sorts of alternative truths and all sorts of decoys and uh, cul-de-sacs and hints and suspicions so that in the end people just shrug and go back to watching Juventus against Inter on a Sunday evening it, it's something that's it repeatedly happens and scandals that seem to go on for years and years with alternative theories it's something Perandella wrote about beautifully about the sort of the, the suspicions and paranoia of of trying to get to the root of what's really happening and that that seems to me perfect sort of again a perfect setting for a crime novel to try and try and work out what is going on and, and what's a decoy and what's a cul-de-sac you haven't gone for the obvious facet of an Italian set crime novel, which is organised crime. That's that's sort of there in the background. It's something in the the whole sort of economy, but it's 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 not at the forefront of this book. No, I think the the danger in writing about Italy is that it's very easy to fall into the kind of the stereotypes, which are obviously organised crime, be it the Indrangheta or Cosa Nostra or, or whichever. And again, me just being contrary, I wanted to to do a family saga. I didn't want to to do organised crime. And I'm sure further on down the line, Castagnetti will come up against the Camorra or whoever it is. And it'll be interesting to see how he does it. But probably because of the Ross MacDonald influence or because I simply wanted to avoid that trap of stereotypical Italian crime writing, I avoided organised crime this time round. We do know, however, that Castagnetti is a beekeeper. Well, Castagnetti is a, is a, a driven loner. He lives on his own. He lost his parents. He hasn't got a partner. He sort of lives life in the fast lane and shoots from the hip. The only sort of serenity or tranquility or time for contemplation he gets is with his bees. And it's a, it's a hobby that kind of suits him because he can't, grow fond of any one particular bee it's not like a pet that he names that he can get affection from and they're slightly sort of dangerous in as much as of course they can sting but there's something almost sort of monastic to their their harmonious hive that he admires and that he compares to to human society and in that sense it it gives him a chance to sort of chill out as it were to take his foot off the pedal to to slow down the pace of his investigation and and sort of reflect on his life, I suppose. With characters whose native language isn't English, you've obviously got to find a language, invent a language for them to speak. How did you go about that with this book? In terms of finding the right diction, I just wrote it how it felt right, how Italian characters would speak. And yet sometimes it came out more like a 1940s, 1950s Californian crime novel. And sometimes it sounded very Italian. And I think the diction is is probably the sort of the most serious technical challenge other than obviously the plot, trying to work out how to convey to an English reader the, the sort of the intonation and the, the the cadences of Italian in English without sounding stilted or artificial is is very challenging. And I'm not sure I've still got it quite right yet, but it's certainly a, a sort of a, a strategic decision to drop in Italian words that are very, whose meaning is very clear from the context in which they come, so that one is constantly aware of the the setting. 
Can can you in your head imagine what an Italian translation will sound like, or is that is that something that will be revealed to you when an Italian translator works on it? The difficulty of doing an Italian translation, I know it because you know my most serious critic has said as much already, is that the Italian way of talking, particularly I think probably more in the north and in the south, is not necessarily straight talking, hard hitting you know, going for the jugular. It's more that mellifluous, flowery, hinting, subtle, musical presentation of sound as much as meaning. And I suspect that it will come out more flowery in an Italian translation than it does in English. And, you know, my most close critic says as much that to her it it sounds too English that it's it, it's not gentle enough for the sort of the 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 soft soap approach of you know an Italian investigator let me ask you finally Tobias can you give us any clues as to what Castagnetti's second case is going to involve well Castagnetti's second case is called white death and He's hired by a man who lives in a factory whose car has been burnt at night. So it's a simple case of arson. I mean, I don't like particularly always to have a dead body on the first page and it's quite nice to to build up to it. So he thinks it's a simple case of arson and it emerges that it's to do with corruption between the construction and political classes. Again, it takes him deeper into the the world of Italian crime. Tobias Jones. The Salati case is available now in hardback and appears later this month in paperback. That's all for this programme, and indeed this is the last Faber podcast of this year. I hope you've enjoyed them and discovered some interesting new books as a result. Don't forget, there's plenty of audio material, including many author readings, on the Faber website at faber.co.uk. I'll be back again next year with highlights of the spring list. I hope you can join me then, and until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.